Brian McClanahan Show, episode 225. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. If you want to support the Brian McClanahan Show, go to McClanahanAcademy.com. It's always free to enroll. And there you can purchase one of my six courses, including the newest, which is Reconstruction and Recreation. It's a great course focuses on the period after the war. It's really part two of my War for Southern Independence class. You're going to want to get both those classes. And, of course, those people that do enroll do get the best deals on forthcoming courses. And I plan on having at least two more this year in 2019. So you want to go out and enroll in McClanahan Academy. You can also support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on if you're watching it, help keep the podcast going while you're there. Also, give me an email address at brianmcclanahan.com, and I'll give you a free ebook and a free audiobook, Forgotten Founders, read by yours truly. So go ahead and do that. Also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says Shop. Click on that. You can get all of my Brian McClanahan Show apparel, whether it's T-shirts, coffee cups, wall plates, stickers, all kinds of cool stuff. So you can support the show that way. So a lot of different ways to support the Brian McClanahan Show. Uh, I've got uh, gear. I've got the McClanahan Academy. You can you can uh, just support the show by throwing a few bucks my way for the podcast. Whatever you want to do, I appreciate all of this, all of the support. And of course, the McClanahan Academy is the best way you get something for it besides the podcast. You get all of the great stuff and those courses that uh, are up there. So. Support the show, help me out, and uh, help me uh, keep this thing going. All this great free content that I give you. All right, well, let's talk about the topic of the day. This is actually a listener-generated episode. Um, it was an, an email that was sent to me saying, have you, have you looked at this particular article? And I had not. Um, and so it's an interesting article. It's entitled Conservative Democracy. It was published at firstthings.com, and it's written by Yoram Hazoni. And Yoram Hazoni is an Israeli nationalist. He actually attended Princeton. Um, and he is very interested in the topic of nationalism. Uh, in fact, his most recent book, let me find it here, is The Virtue of Nationalism. And so he's, he writes this piece for First Things in order to outline what we need for uh, the future of politics in America. And his, his conclusion is a conservative democracy. This is what he calls it. And there are certain parts of this conservative democracy. So he spends a lot of time in the first part of the piece tearing down classical liberalism, uh, essentially tearing down the Enlightenment is what he's doing. Now, this is not uncommon. This is actually interesting because if you look at the antebellum South, for example, one of, the, one of the things that Southerners did in the antebellum South essentially was, particularly by the 1850s, they started tearing down the Enlightenment. Because in their mind, the idea of the Enlightenment was destroying conservatism in America. So these Southerners didn't particularly care for Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, for example. Um, they, and people like uh, uh, R.L. Dabney, 
uh, were very critical of uh, the cult of reason that appeared to be taking over America. And he was he was critical of northern religious leaders because he said they really weren't religious leaders. They weren't following the Bible, for example. So you had, and that's just, I mean, a very basic understanding of what's going on here. But you had these individuals in the South who were concerned with the future of liberal democracy in America, because this is what they thought was happening. It was reform-driven liberal democracy in America. Now, the war comes, 1861 to 65, and liberal democracy essentially takes over America. The other thing that happens is that nationalism sweeps America. Everything becomes a national issue. And so this is where I'm going to have critique this Hazoni piece. I think he's right about some things, but wrong about others. He can't uh, get that what he's advocating here is problematic for an American political system for the original American political system, which was designed to handle the problems that would come from nationalism. So Hazoni, remember, he's a nationalist. He believes that nationalism is the future of the world and that nationalism should, can and should solve just about every political problem you have. And I, he says some very interesting things about it. Um, it it's, a, it's, a, it's a thought-provoking piece. Uh, but he begins, the present moment is one of growing discomfort, both in America and in Europe, with the regent, I'm sorry, with the regnant liberal political theory often described as liberal democracy. It is frequently said that the only genuine alternatives to liberal democracy are Marxism and fascism. But I don't believe this is true. I want to sketch an alternative viewpoint that I will call conservative democracy. This position is closer to the spirit of traditional constitutionalism in both America and Britain, than the liberal, poli liberal political theories of our day. Moreover, it is better equipped to maintain the free institutions of these nations than liberalism. So this is an interesting point. He's saying, look, we got liberal democracy. People are uncomfortable with it on the right. And uh, instead of going to fascism, or instead of knee-jerk going, if you're on the left, to Marxism, maybe this would be better. Now, I don't know if Marxists will buy this. I mean, they won't. They won't buy this type of conservative democracy. Even though it has democracy in the title, they're not going to buy it. So this is appealing to uh, conservatives who, in his mind, in Hazoni's mind, are, are flirting with fascism, which I don't... Look, I mean, I know there's the alt-right out there running around. They're, they're, um, and you have um, the alt-right uh, stupidly uh, doing things that are, are fascist, but um, I, I don't think that many people in America are pushing for fascism. Um, there are some. But I don't think that most conservatives in America are flirting with fascism at all. And they don't look at it as an answer to any of the political problems in America. Um, he, he gives some, some statistics about some things. Uh, the first part of the article uh, is, it's okay. Uh, he, he describes the liberal system. He, he uh, lambastes. Again, the the liberal democracy position, and remember, he's he's pulling this from a fundamentalist religious position. So, on page six, a seventeen-page article it takes about forty minutes to read it. On page six of the printout, um, he says this. But is there an alternative? And so he starts getting into conservative, what he calls conservative democracy. As I observed at the outset, many of our most gifted writers 
and intellectuals are, con- are constantly trying to convince us that we have no choice but to be liberals. It's either that, that or Marxism and fascism. And since these alternatives are appalling, an assertion which, with which I myself concur, there is, by process of elimination, no alternative but to be a liberal. I mean, this is it. He's saying the, the way that the debate is framed, and I, and I do agree, look, you either can be a liberal or you can be a Marxist or a fascist. Now, I don't think that's true. I think that he's not looking at all the other alternatives out there. There's American traditionalism, which is not Marxism. It's not fascism. It's not conservative democracy. It's republicanism. It is, a, it is an alternative. Republicanism, with a lowercase r, is an alternative. And that's not liberal democracy. That's not fascism. That's not Marxism. There's libertarianism, which has a lot in common with republicanism. So there are alternatives out there besides what he calls conservative democracy. Now, he, he sells this hard, this conservative democracy. And again, I'm going to talk about what he says about it. He says, often I cannot tell whether this claim is simply the product of ignorance or whether it's intended by some to be deliberately misleading. Whatever the case may be, this argument insists that there is no choice but to select one of the three anti-religious, anti-traditionalist doctrines of the 20th century, and that the only course open to us is to choose the least terrible of the three. What is obviously suppressed by the constant repetition of this argument is the possibility that there were, until quite recently, conservative alternatives to liberalism that often that offered, I'm sorry, a different way of thinking about public life. So, I mean, he says there's other things besides conservative democracy. He's just going to sell this conservative democracy. The word conservative is usually used as a synonym for traditionalist. A conservative is someone who strives to defend and build up the political and intellectual traditions of his or her own tribe or nation. That's a fairly interesting definition. I think fairly accurate. Um, he says, of course, this doesn't mean that a conservative needs to defend every last foolish thing that has ever been part of that tradition. Every political tradition undergoes adjustments over time. But if a change is going to be made, then a conservative would like to see such repairs made on the basis of principles internal to the existing order, and always with an eye to strengthening the unique structure of the political order as a whole. So this is Chesterton's fence. And I think Hazoni is on to something here. This is G.K. Chesterton. Look, we have a fence. You put up a fence. And you see, uh, why did they build the fence? And if we're going to tear the fence down, then there should be a good reason for tearing the fence down. Not just because we want to tear the fence down. This means that conservatism is not something like Marxism or liberalism, both of which are universal theories that propose a single answer to the question of the political good for all nations, everywhere on earth and at all times in history. Unlike these universalist theories, there can be as many different conservatisms as there are national and tribal traditions. There are conservative traditions in China and India, Russia and Germany, that are radically different from ours. And maybe there are certain things that are attractive about each of them, or maybe not. But as a conservative, I'm not committed to defending them all, nor should you be either. This is a very important point to make. It's it's anti-imperialist. It's anti-cultural imperialism. And I love that about this particular piece. I think that Hazoni is on to something here. One of the problems with nationalism, though, is that it's a top-down system. So he, he doesn't see the incongruity between his position on nationalism, particularly in America, and what he's advocating here, because he does subscribe to essentially a one-people belief in America. And it's simply not true. Now, what is he, what does he base that on? And I'll get to it. It's essentially a civic religion. And that civic religion is is problematic for America. 
It's problematic for America because that civic religion doesn't necessarily fit with every part of America. This is something that people have pointed out, regionalists have pointed out for since the beginning of the United States. Look, we can't govern the South with New England, and we can't govern New England with the South, for example. It just doesn't work. So the regionalists were interested in trying to absorb those differences and uh, manage them with a political system that would work. And I'll get into that in a minute. What is of interest here is a particular conservative political tradition, the conservative tradition of English-speaking countries, which which I will call Anglo-American conservatism. Okay, so I agree with this. There's the Anglo-American political and legal traditions. These are important, and they are the basis of our belief in the rule of law. And he gets into that later. Okay, so there are parts of this particular piece that I really like. I think he's on to something here and very important uh, positions that he's on to here, and I, and, and I like that. This is a tradition that can be traced back to the Middle Ages. But we may speak of a kind of classical period for this tradition that begins with John Fortescue in the 1470s and continues with a whole bunch of people, including, in his mind, Alexander Hamilton. This is where he goes off the rails. Because Hamilton, Hamilton is highly problematic. Hamilton is problematic because he's a nationalist, because he is a top-down, one-size-fits-all proponent of American solutions. Now, those American solutions don't mesh with conservative traditions within the United States, you see. There are various conservative traditions within the United States itself. He continues, this Anglo-American tradition is described in a recent essay of mine, What is Conservatism? In it, we propose the, that the Anglo-American conservative tradition can be characterized as being built around five principles. Number one, historical empiricism. The authority of government derives from constitutional traditions known through the long historical experience of a given nation to offer stability, well-being, and freedom. These are refined through trial and error over many centuries, with repairs and improvements being introduced where necessary, while seeking to maintain the integrity of the inherited national edifice as a whole. So here he's using this term national, which again is problematic. We never had a national government in America, not at the founding. We didn't have one. So by using this term national, he's confusing the founding with a national founding. It just wasn't the case. Such historical empiricism entails a skeptical standpoint with regard to the divine right of the rulers, the universal rights of man, and, other, and all other abstract universal systems. Written documents express and consolidate the constitutional traditions of the nation, but they can neither capture nor define this political tradition in its entirety. So again, the idea of a national government was rejected outright in Philadelphia. Rejected outright. But here's where he gets in. He says nationalism is conservative. It's only conservative if the, <laughs> if the ruling culture... I should say it's only conservative for the ruling culture. Nationalism, as Clyde Wilson points out, is not patriotism. It's not the same thing. And nationalism involves a certain type of civic religion, which is, uh, which is the antithesis of the American founding. It doesn't mean that the American founding wasn't based on Anglo-American traditions. It was, namely the Magna Charta and the English Bill of Rights. Very important. Those are very important things. Of course, the English Bill of Rights being part of a Enlightenment liberal tradition. But uh, he would say, well, that's part of a constitutional tradition over time that was codifying the Magna Carta. And I, and I can agree with that. 
and I, and I and I and I buy it. I mean, I think that's very important. If you look at the structure of the English Bill of Rights, you see the same structure, for example, in the Declaration, which the Declaration is not a founding document, as has been pointed out uh, by uh, Pauli Meyer. It's a it's a defounding document, at least in the idea of the right of secession. Now, it's also though a founding document in the last paragraph, which is the most important thing. Now, if you want to get more of this. Just take my McClanahan Academy course on the Declaration or the one on secession or the one on American constitutions. I mean, I get into this in all three areas. And if you want to see me bash Hamilton, take the one on how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. All those things work together. I mean, they're, they're basically all part and parcel. They, they touch on all of these particular issues in more detail. So the second part, nationalism. Number two, nationalism. Human beings do not live as isolated individuals, but form national collectives characterized by bonds of mutual loyalty and unique inherited traditions. This, the diversity of national experiences means that different nations will have different constitutional religious traditions. I agree. Even within the United States, but he doesn't believe that. The Anglo-American tradition harkens, harkens back to principles of a free and just national state, chartering its own course, without foreign interference, whose origin is in the Hebrew Bible. These include a conception of the nation as, assert, as rising out of diverse tribes, its, only, its unity anchored in a common cultural inheritance, especially traditional language, law, and religion. Such nationalism is not based on race and is capable of embracing new members who declare that your people will be my people and your God my God. So um, this is interesting, that he, this his definition of nationalism. First of all, it's it's... Not true in the United States. There is no national collective in the United States in 1776 or 1787 or 1798 or 1832. There's no national collective. It doesn't exist. Essentially what you had were two different sections battling over the spoils and battling over the, the, the vehicle by which they could gain and maintain power. And that became known as nationalism. Now, I would say Southerners were much more realistically nationalist than Northerners. Northerners always were sectionalists. Southerners believed in the good of the Union for the good of the whole. But that Union was limited in what it could do because of the fear of nationalism, you see. The founding generation were not nationalists. They were not open to a nationalism like this. Now, they would talk about assimilation. They would say, well, if you come over here and you behave and you act like Americans, I mean, we, we, you can do this. But there was a strong xenophobic strain to Americans, particularly Alexander Hamilton, even Thomas Jefferson. They didn't necessarily want people just to come over and, hey, if you're one of us, you're good. No, no, no. Uh, that wasn't always the case. They didn't, they didn't think that unlimited immigration was essentially a, a good thing, as, even if you were just thinking, oh, I'm going to be just like you. Um, so nationalism is too broad, and when he says that, uh, this, this definition is, is too tied into a civic religion, state worship. State worship. You can't have that in the United States. It doesn't work. This is not, it might work great in Israel. I mean, this is where, this is where Hazoni lives. He lives in Israel. It might work great in Israel. You have a much smaller, more homogenous population there. So in a homogenous population, you can say that, well, I mean, nationalism might work. It's culturally homogenous. That's the other important thing. The United States is not culturally homogenous. That's the part that he's missing here. It's not just language and law and religion. Even in that religion, even in Christian denominations, you don't have cultural 
uh, a culturally homogenous people. And he brings that up, religion. It has to be religion. The state upholds and honors the biblical God and religious practices common to the nation. But you don't necessarily have that in the United States. Even within Christian denominations, you don't have that. Um, these are the centerpiece of the national heritage and indispensable for justice and public morals. At the same time, the state offers wide toleration of religious and social views that do not endanger the integrity and well-being of the nation as a whole. Now, I can see this on a state level, okay, but not nationalism. And I think, again, this is where he runs into all kinds of problems, not nationalism. Okay, at a state level, this might work. And in fact, in 1788, when the Constitution was ratified, you still had three state-established churches in America, New England. And the, the American population was certainly not certainly pro-Christian. I mean, there were Christians, uh, but there was a wide toleration within that framework of Christianity. So you could say that we're Christians and we have a Christian set of legal beliefs. Okay, I mean... Dabney would say that you can't have real secular education. You can't have that because if you lose the basis of religion, you lose society. So, I mean, there are people that would agree with this, and, and I do, but on a state level, not from the central government. Limited executive power. The powers of the king or president are limited by the laws of the nation, which he neither determines nor adjudicates. The powers of the king or president are limited by the representatives of the people whose advice and consent he must obtain both respecting the laws and taxation. Okay, I mean, this is the English tradition to have a limited executive. Uh, I agree with this 100%, but again, you use this term na nation. Individual freedoms have to be secured. Okay, so I agree with all of that. Um he says, these principles can serve as a summary of the Anglo-American conservative tradition that was the basis for the restoration of the English Constitution in 1689. So he's talking about the Bill of Rights. And for the American Restoration, which took place upon the ratification of the American Constitution of 1787 after 12 years of disarray. Now, I would, 12 years of disarray and how? I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. These same principles have continued to underpin subsequent conservative political tradition in Britain, America, and other nations down to our time. The crucial difference between the, this conservative tradition and liberalism thus can be understood by the, in the following way. Liberalism, as has, said, has, been, has, has been said, is a political doctrine based on the assumption that reason is everywhere the same and accessible in principle to all individuals, and that one need only consult reason to arrive at one, the form, one form of government that is everywhere the best, which has recently been given the name liberal democracy. This term was apparently first popularized in Central Europe in the 1920s and attained a dominant position in political discourse in the English-speaking world only in the 1990s. What is meant by this term is a form of government that borrows certain principles from the early Anglo-American conservative tradition. But liberal democracy breaks with early Anglo-American political tradition in regarding these principles having been derived from liberal axioms and therefore detachable from the broader Anglo-American tradition in which they historically arose. So he's saying liberal democracy is anti-history. Uh, he says, this means like all rationalists, liberals are engaged in applying local truths, which hold good under certain conditions to quite different situations and circumstances where they often go badly wrong. For conservatives, these failures, for example, the repeated collapse of liberal constitutions in places such as Mexico, France, Germany, Italy, Nigeria, Russia, and Iraq, among others, suggest that the principles in question have been overextended. It should be regarded as only true within a narrow range of conditions. So I agree with this. He's actually talking about localism here. 
When you start talking about nationalism, though, that conflicts with what he's saying. It contradicts what he's saying here. I agree with him. Localism is important. You can't extend these things out beyond a local. This is think locally, act locally, which is conservative. It's also not nationalist. And so this is where he runs into his, he gets in his own way by advocating nationalism. Traditionally, he says, Americans referred to their form of government as Republican government. Indeed, insofar as usage is concerned, the term liberal democracy has not become more common in public discussion than the traditional term Republican government until the 1960s. But you have to understand what Republicanism is. Particularly the Federal Republic. Now, you see, the Federal Republic, the overarching structure was Republican in that it was limited. It was limited. And of course, you had Republican institutions which relied on representative uh, democracy, you might call it, um, where you had people elected to serve in Republican. But see, again, the Federal Republic, what's important is we didn't have a central authority that could do everything. We had a central authority for certain defined needs for the entire union as a whole, namely commerce and defense. And that was it. So it was a federal republic. This is where republicanism comes from. Now, it was deeper than that because, of course, people like Jefferson and others got into this idea of republicanism that went down to how individuals govern themselves within the state itself. But the states could have a wide control of all kinds of things. This is where states are important. He gets into uh, then... Uh, he asks, what is a Republican government in the traditional American conception? A Republican government in America was, among other things, <clears throat> one that could see itself as reflecting and reinforcing the values of a Christian people. Indeed, in 1942, FDR was still speaking of a United States as a nation that holds the old ideas of Christianity. But see, it wasn't a singular republic. It could absorb the differences of the discordant states and regions. This is where Yazoni is wrong about this. He doesn't really understand the founding. He's looking at it from a nationalist worldview, which is incompatible with the founding. But by 1948, we find for the first time the U.S. Supreme Court banning voluntary religious education in public schools that offers simultaneous Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish classes. Here, Judges Hugo Black writes, this is nationalism. What, what Black is doing is incorporating the 14th Amendment. Uh, again, you take my how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America because I have a section on Hugo Black. But what he's doing is incorporating the 14th Amendment. And uh, this is highly problematic. It's nationalism. It's, not, it's nothing but that. Black was a nationalist. He was a progressive nationalist. So he's saying we, you can't have these local things controlling schools. You can't have the states controlling schools because we have this overarching national dedication to the First Amendment, which it was never designed to do that. So he says this is all problematic, so what he proposes is a conservative democracy. And that conservative democracy is characterized by several things. Number one, public religion. Liberalism suggests that universal reason is, an, is the necessary and sufficient basis for a just and moral government. This means that religions, religious and national tradition, which has earlier been the basis for a public understanding of justice and right, can be replaced in public discourse by universal reason itself. A conservative democratic view holds that none of this is true. 
conservatives see human reason as producing a constant profusion of ever-changing views concerning justice and morals, a fact that is evident today in the constant assertion of you human rights. Conservatives hold that that the only stable basis for national independence, justice, and public morals is a strong biblical tradition in government and public life. The liberal doctrine requiring a wall of separation between church and state at all levels of government is, as has been said, a product of the post-World War II period and not an inherent feature of American political tradition. This is 100% accurate. You see, the states could do these things. Um, So he's right about this. The problem is by advocating, again, a national order, you're going to get Hugo Black. You see, he doesn't see that the two work together. Hugo Black was a nationalist. He's just a nationalist that Hazoni doesn't like. So if you have nationalism, you open the door to Hugo Black. If you want what he's advocating here, you need real federalism, which is the solution, not nationalism, not conservative democracy. The solution to everything that ails America is federalism. Because it allows individuals and the separate states that have a national identity to their state or their region. You could even say we need some type of regional government. But if you have these things, you will not have the problems that Hazoni is talking about here. You see, with regionalism or federalism, you create a climate, a political climate, in which differences can be absorbed and the center doesn't have to control it all. You don't have a type of cultural imperialism. Law. Liberals regard the laws of a nation as emerging from the tension between positive law and the pronouncements of universal reason, as expressed by the courts. Conservatives reject the supposed universal reason of judges, which often amounts to little more than acceding to passing fashion. But conservatives also oppose an excessive regard for isolated written documents, which leads, for example, to the liberal mythology of America as a creedal nation or a proposition nation, defined solely by certain abstractions found in the American Declaration of Independence or the Gettysburg Address. Important though these documents are, they cannot substitute for the Anglo-American political tradition as a whole with its roots in scripture and the English common law. He, he doesn't understand law, American law. I mean, it's clear he doesn't understand it. I agree with him. The idea of a proposition nation, that's the neoconservative Straussian position. It's not just liberals. This is conservatives too that do this. So he doesn't really understand what's going on in America in conservatism because American neoconservatives are essentially nationalists that want to push this type of liberal understanding of the American founding. The Declaration and the Gettysburg Address are not founding documents. Those aren't written documents. You look at the last paragraph of the Declaration, which says we have free and independent states. Well, I, I mean, that's that's good. And of course, that factored in the Articles of Confederation than the Constitution. But what he's talking about here is a higher law idea. I mean, that's not conservatism. He says... Conservatives reject the supposed universal reason of judges, which often amounts to little more than this acceding to passing fashion. But that's the English common law system. So he, he's in, he doesn't understand. what this, this paragraph is a mess. It's a mess. And that's unfortunate uh, because he, he's confused about a lot of things here. Education. Liberals believe that schools should teach students to recognize liberty, equality, and consent of the universal aims of political order and to see America's founding political documents as having been designed by a process of free reasoning to achieve these aims. Well, not necessarily. I mean, uh, liberals do do that. I mean, he says conservatives believe education should focus on the historical development and advantages of the Anglo-American constitutional and religious tradition with its roots in the Bible as well as in the way in which tradition has given rise to a unique family of nations that has influenced all mankind. 
This must involve learning, as Burke says, to recognize good government as fitted to unique private and public liberty with public force, with order, with peace, with justice, and above all, with the institutions formed for bestowing permanence and stability through ages. Um, it's, look, again, conservatives or a conservative education would do this. I mean, he's talking about some things. There would be an interesting look at, at documents, but in understanding how the traditions produce these documents. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Economy. He gets into economy, immigration. He says uh, conservatives, uh, he, he, he outlines the difference between liberals and conservatives on, on immigration. He says conservatives see successful large-scale immigration as possible only where the immigrants are strongly motivated to integrate and assisted in assimilating the national traditions of their new home country. In the absence of these conditions, the result will be chronic intellectual tension and violence. Liberal empire, he says, Liberal empire is nowhere near conservative. I agree with this. This is, this is a great position to make. So he's he's in many ways advocating a paleoconservative position, but he confuses nationalism and federalism. Nationalism is not the solution. Federalism is. And he says international bodies and conservatives don't, don't um, agree with those. Now, um, He says, many can now see that the nations of the West are hurtling towards an abyss. I have offered a sketch of what would mean to back away from it. I have suggested that there is no need for a revolutionary revision of the great constitutional documents of the Anglo-American political tradition. But the liberal axiom system must be set aside. We must cease to consider it as a source of our political institutions. We must stop teaching it as dogma to our children. We must retrieve older traditions of Anglo-American political thought, which may yet be revived as a political model that can be called conservative democracy. Now, what we need, and there are parts of that piece that I agree with, but what we need is federalism. If you want, and, and it, federalism allows for, not nationalism. Nationalism is, is not going to solve anything because it creates tremendous tension because America was never a nation. The United States was never a nation. It was never a singular republic. It was never a national government. It was never designed that way. And when you start pushing nationalism, you get the extreme political tension we have in America now. What you need is regionalism and federalism. You need localism. You need think locally, act locally. That's what you need in order to solve the political problems of America, to let the local people decide their own education, how they're going to do it best, and not have a top-down solution, to allow for religion in public life. Yes, at the local level. And to ensure that people that are have a religiously based society can follow that and not a national identity, which is what the courts are doing. They're enforcing some type of national liberalism or liberal democracy. That's what they're forcing on everyone through nationalism. Uh, I mean, you look at so many of the issues that the 14th Amendment supposedly handles, which it doesn't. I mean, that's, that's a distortion of the 14th. But the problem is it's all nationalism. It's the very thing Hazoni is saying we need is destroying what he's saying we need. So this piece is, is confused in its solution. I like parts of it. I mean, I think it's very good. And Hazoni's not, he's, he's a smart guy, but he just doesn't understand the American founding. If he did, he wouldn't advocate much of the stuff or this nationalist top-down position that he's advocating. Otherwise, the piece is pretty good. Now, it's thought-provoking. I mean, he gets into some things and he says, look, I mean, we don't need to restructure. We don't need to restructure the Constitution. The Constitution is still there. I mean, look, we could say we need to, we need to uh, interpret the 14th Amendment properly. But we don't need a radical restructuring of the Constitution or anything else. So again, 
a great piece. Thank you for the individual that sent it to me. Gave me a great topic for a podcast. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.